you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of James, James chapter 4. If you have one of the Bibles from the back table, it's on page 1115, book of James chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 11 through the end of the chapter, verse 17. I was noting some news about Usain Bolt. If anyone was born to be a sprinter, it's a guy named Usain Bolt. What a last name, right? Um, he's known for being the fastest man to ever live, um, but he's also known for letting, ev- letting everyone else know how fast he knows <laughs> he is. Um, <clears throat> he's got some, some pride, as we all do. But I was noting that at a recent competition within the past week in his signature event, the 100 meters, he was beat. Uh, This was supposed to be sort of his last uh, victory lap, as it were, and he was running the race and got beat out at the very end. And then I noted this morning um, that another race that that his team had won in the Olympics, the Jamaican sprinting team, the relay race, that Bolt, in the middle of the race, injured his leg and fell to the ground and was unable to finish. This was supposed to be his, his victory lap, his sort of you know, last stand to show how amazing he was. But he had been humbled, humbled by the one thing that will humble all of us, which is time. Time always catches up to us. But if we're not careful, we all begin to think that we're invincible, that we are unbeatable. Um, there's a little bit of Usain Bolt in all of us, probably a lot more than we would like to admit. Uh, Proverbs um, tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before a fall and we all know that that is true from personal experience. Um, Here James is going to seek to reveal the pride that's in all of us and call us to a humble submission to God, a submission that he's already mentioned. And even as Joel prayed, the goal is not to look at other people The goal is not for me to point out Usain Bolt and say, oh, look how prideful he is, but rather to point him out as an example of what we all are in ourselves, that we are all filled with pride, and we need to humble ourselves before God. Last week we considered that the, the cause of fighting and quarrels among us finds its source in our sinful desires, and if we are to rightly order our desires in a way that would cause us to be at peace with one another, then we need to be at peace with God. That's where our focus needs to be. A right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with others. And so James, after he explains the source of all these conflicts in verses 6 through 10, calls us to submit to God, knowing that he will give us grace, to resist the devil, knowing that the devil will flee from us, to draw near to God in repentance and humble ourselves, knowing that he will draw near to us. And then finally he says that we should humble ourselves, knowing that God will exalt us at the right time. And in all of these things, humility is, is sort of the source and the key to, to all of these different actions. A humble heart is what leads the way into submitting to God, to resisting the devil, to drawing near to God. Humility is not thinking poorly of ourselves or looking to hide in a corner. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity in a way that only C.S. Lewis uh, could write things. 
He said, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a, a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. If we are to humble ourselves before God, then we must first admit that we are proud, that we are arrogant, that we are conceited, that we think more of ourselves than of God and of his kingdom and of people created in his image. It's pride that's at the root of the issues in verses 11 through 17. And so we're going to, we we need to acknowledge our arrogance on the issues that James is going to address. And he wants us to submit to God. And in this call to submit to God, he's going to call out a couple different ways that we don't submit to God. So what is James' call in these verses? I think this is what James is telling us in verses 11 through 17 of chapter 4. He's saying, submit to God. Now he's already said that, but he's going to expand on it. So submit to God how? By humbly living under his rule. Submit to God by humbly living under his rule. And what kind of a rule is it? His rule as the only lawgiver and judge and the sovereign Lord of time. Now that was long. I tried to break it down. If you just want to say submit to God by humbly living under his rule, that would be sufficient, but I'll give you the rest of it again. Submit to God by humbly living under his rule. What is the rule? As the only lawgiver and judge and the sovereign Lord of time. I want us to think about submitting to God and living under his rule and recognizing who he is, that he is the lawgiver, he is the judge, and he is the sovereign Lord of time. So let's read James chapter 4, and I'll read verses 11 through 17. James 4, beginning in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Pride and arrogance are inward sins. They are sins of the heart. But they show up in our lives, they show up in our attitudes, and not surprisingly, they show up in the words that we say. Remember, we've been thinking about what Jesus says, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And again, the mouth reveals the contents of our hearts. So James, in his call to submit to God, to humble ourselves before him, addresses two different ways 
that we speak. And in addressing the ways, these words, he's going to get to our hearts. Because remember, our words reveal our hearts. So he calls us to submit to God by humbly living under his rule. And then verses 11 through 12, he says, here's the first command. Don't speak evil against one another. Those who submit to God's rule, he says, don't speak evil against one another. James, again, showing his, his concern for love of neighbor. That's, that's the heartbeat of James. Love your neighbor as yourself. Says that no evil speech about others should ever come out of our mouth. He says don't slander. Don't tear one another down. Don't gossip and speak badly about others to others as a way of building up your own ego and your own pride. James is not forbidding judgment because there's, there's a place for confronting others about real sin and real shortcomings, but rather he's, commit, he's, he's condemning judgmentalism. Ken Hughes defines judgmentalism as a critical and censorious or divisive spirit that judges everyone and everything seeking to run others down. The kind of talk he seems to be specifically pointing out here is, is the way that we point out the sins of others to anyone other than the person that we're talking about, of judging other people with our words. Hopefully I've explained it enough that we can all recognize it's in our own hearts and in our lives. That we judge others. We tear others down rather than lovingly confronting them or building them up. We focus on the lives of others and what they're doing wrong more than we focus on our own lives and how we need to walk according to God's ways. James says that this is wrong. And he says it's wrong because it flows from a pride that exalts itself above God as the lawgiver and the judge. So don't speak evil against one another. And when we do speak evil against one another, what does it reveal? It reveals a heart of pride that is saying, I am the judge, I am the lawgiver, not God. To talk about others in this way is to put ourselves above others. But even worse, it's to put ourselves above God and his role as the lawgiver and the judge. God alone is given this rule. This is what Deuteronomy 32:39 says. God pronounces, "See now that I, even I am he, and there is no god beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand." Jesus says in Matthew 28, he soberly commands us, "Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." We fear no one but God because God alone is the righteous lawgiver. God alone is the judge. But when we speak about the sins of others to others, we function as judge over them. We condemn others as guilty. And even if we're right about their sin, the law was not given for me to slander the people who break it. Rather, the law was given to convict me and to instruct me. My job is not to be a judge of the law. My job is to be a keeper of the law. I think that's what James is getting at. Again, James so focused on being doers of the word and not hearers only. When we slander others, we act as if we are above the law. You know that phrase, someone acting as if they are above the law, that they are exempt from the laws that everyone else has to obey. Those with power or money or influence, they're often tempted to do this. It may be those individuals that James has in mind, given the the context here. Uh, You might think about a biblical example about King David, 
who somehow forgot his place as God's servant, and he let his power and authority lead to him justifying his adultery with Bathsheba and then his murder of Uriah. But it's not just people with lots of power. Uh, We all think of ourselves as better than others, and we're all prone to this. We view ourselves as outside of the law. We can judge others about the things that we ourselves are doing wrong. Uh, when we went, Andrew and I got to go visit Jordan and Sarah in the hospital, and we got off the elevator. And right when we got off the elevator, there was this whole crowd of people waiting around this desk to get these bright pink visitors' badges. We stood there for about ten seconds, and I said, "I don't think we need to do this." And there was a, a man standing near us that said, "Yes, you do." <laughs> I, for a moment, I thought I was above the law. The the, the standard procedure of this: I don't need to do this. We can just go see people because we know where they're at. But I was not above the law. My pride got in the way for a second, and I was wrong. This is what happens when we we look at others and we say, well, that's a law for everyone else. That's what they have to do. I'm allowed to break that law. I'm allowed to do something different. I was trying to think about how we do this, and as probably just from my own personal experience, I thought, do I do this as a parent? Do I ask my kids to, to do things, and then I fail to hold myself to the same standard that I'm calling them to? As a spouse, do I require things of my spouse that I myself am not doing? Do I get upset at at my wife because she's not doing things that I'm not even doing? Maybe as an employee, you get upset at, at, or or you break rules because, well, that's for all the new people. I've been here, you know, for 10 years, and that's something that they have to do. That's a standard that they keep, but it's not for me. Maybe even as Christians. I think sometimes we say, well, I've been a Christian now for so many years, and so these standards of holiness, these commands in God's word, you know, that's more for people who are new Christians. I don't have to read my Bible as much as someone who's a new Christian. Not that that's a law in and of itself, but we seem to think that we are above others in some certain way. Commands are just for certain people. They're not for me. I think that all flows from this pride that exalts ourselves above God as the lawgiver and judge. And it leads to us speaking evil of others and then failing to live according to the standard that we're holding everyone else to. James says that is wrong. It's evil. And the solution is not simply to say, of course, well, I'm going to stop speaking evil about others. Remember, where where are the words coming from? They're coming from our heart. And it's a heart of pride that has exalted ourselves above God. And so what do we need to do? We need to submit to God. We need to humble ourselves, confess that pride, and submit and say, God is the lawgiver. God is the judge. We need to focus on keeping the law ourselves and trust that God is the one who will make sure that everyone else is doing what they need to do. We can become micromanagers of everyone else's life to the point that we're not managing our own well. We know what everyone else is doing, but we are blind to the ways that we are sinful. We need to submit and say, it's God's job. I need to love my brother, I need to love my sister, but I don't need to talk about them behind their back. I don't need to be divisive and slanderous towards them. I need to focus on doing the law myself. I thought about the example of Jesus. Jesus certainly did judge others, and one day he will judge all people. But I also thought, you know, he, Jesus is never one that was slanderous. He never spoke about people behind their backs. He never um, said they're doing this and then avoided keeping the law himself. He never claimed to be above the law, but, but rather he submitted to its demands right from the very beginning all the way to the bitter end. I think about him when John the Baptist says, why are you doing this? Why are you being baptized for repentance? He says it's to fulfill all righteousness. 
He said, I'm going to do what everyone else is doing. I will keep the law in the exact same way as everyone else. And he keeps the law all the way to the point of death on a cross. His righteousness then becomes ours. And we have nothing to boast in except that we know Christ. If our righteousness is not our own, then how could we boast to others? How could we uh, hold people's sin above their heads? No, we should humble ourselves before God as the lawgiver, as the judge. But also we should be humbled by Jesus, who is the true law keeper. And he is the one who is judged in our place on the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that we can show mercy and grace to others. So in his call to submit in humility to God, James says, don't speak evil about one another. That flows from a heart of pride that exalts itself above God as the lawgiver and the judge. But we should humble ourselves and submit to God. The second command is in verses 13 through 17, and it flows from pride too. He says, don't speak evil about others, but in in verses uh, 13 to 17, he says, don't speak arrogantly about the future. Don't speak arrogantly about the future. He begins with this phrase, come now. It's, it's sort of a call for everyone to come and listen. But specifically, he's going to address a, an overconfident businessman. <laughs> this is a guy who says to his partners, hey, you guys, today, maybe tomorrow, we're going to go over to this city, this, uh, this new market. It's an untapped resource in our district, and we're going to spend probably a year there, and we're going to make a lot of money. We're not going to lose money. I know that for sure. We're going to make money, and then we'll come back and spend it all probably. This guy has a plan, and he knows that he will succeed. Oh, the plans we make. We know exactly what we're going to do, don't we? Every day we know exactly where we're going to be, at what time. We plan our vacations. We plan our business ventures. We plan our futures. We know what we're going to be when we grow up. We know where we're going to go to college. We know uh, what our relationships are going to be like. We know what our jobs are going to be like. Um, We know uh, where we're going to uh, work, when we're going to retire, and where we're going to retire to. We know all of these things. We speak with confidence. And later James says that we speak with arrogance about the future. And the problem with this kind of speech is that it flows from a pride that exalts itself above God as the Lord of the future, that God alone is sovereign, that God alone knows what the future holds. It's a pride that assumes knowledge and power that it does not have. So he says in in verse 16 that this is boasting, and that boasting is evil. It's evil because it assumes a position of sovereignty and an arrogant confidence that sits above God. So James wants to give us a reality check. You think you can make all these plans and they will be accomplished. But he says, here's a reality check. And at first he says uh, that our future, at least from our perspective, is uncertain. Not that God doesn't know our future, but we don't know our future. Our future is uncertain. Look at that in, in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We make plans, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring, let alone next year. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. I'm sure that the Cottrells can give you an example of this. Uh, They had a plane flight scheduled. But for some reason, the engine decided that it didn't want to work properly, and so they got bumped today. They had plans, but it didn't happen the way that they expected. If you told me 15 years ago, that I'd be married, I'd be living in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'd have six children, I would have told you, you are insane. You are crazy. 
but the future is uncertain. I don't know what tomorrow will hold. You go into maybe an interview and they say, well, what's your five-year plan? <laughs> five-year plan? I, I don't know what I'm doing for the next five hours sometimes. I don't know what will happen in my life. Life is uncertain. I thought about uh, George Bailey, his speech in It's a Wonderful Life, where he tells Mary, he says, I know what I'm going to do today, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day and next year I'm going to see the world. And he never leaves Bedford Falls in the whole movie. That was his plan. It didn't happen. William Ernest Henley, in a poem called Invictus, famously said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. <laughs> He's totally wrong, at least in the ultimate sense. Our lives are uncertain. No matter how confidently we announce our plans, we are not in control. So our futures are uncertain, but James also says our lives are brief. In the grand scheme of things, our lives, he says, are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It's there in the morning, but it, it quickly fades. It's like the steam that fades away when a pot is boiling. Life is short. This is something Scripture continually affirms. Psalm 102.3, the psalmist says his days pass like smoke. Psalm 103, 15 and 16 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, and the wind passes over, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. And David says in Psalm 39, 5, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. The wise person sees this reality. And it prays, this person will pray with Psalm 90, verse 12, Lord, teach me to number my days so that I will gain a heart of wisdom. Teach me to pause and think about the brevity of life. Ecclesiastes tells us it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, because there a man considers his end, that he will die one day, just like this person. No matter how old we are, life is uncertain, and life is brief. I don't care if you are a child and you feel like you have your whole life ahead of you, or if you are someone who is retired and coming near the end of your life. Life is brief and it's uncertain. It's uncomfortable sometimes when you pause and, and think about that. But wouldn't that be wise? Wouldn't that be wise for all of us to, to pause and to think about how uncertain and brief our, our lives are? To remember that death is coming, and often when we least expect it. I think the psalmist really means number my days. Teach me to number my days. Teach me to pause and to think about how much time I really have left and how I really don't even know that that's how much time that I have left. And to think about how I have spent my days and how I will spend my days. James is very honest, and he wants us to be honest with ourselves about the uncertainty and the brevity of our lives, especially with regard to making arrogant, presumptuous plans about the future. Pride lays out the plan. It's, it's confident that nothing can thwart my plan. And in contrast to that arrogance, to that presumption, humility submits to God. Submits to God. He is the only one who is sovereign over time. Humility submits to God's will. Even, making the, the, even in making plans, recognizing that only God can speak with confidence about the future. I cannot speak confidently about the future in any way. And so James gives us new words to speech. He said, to, to say, he says, you know, come now, who, you who say this, and instead, in verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
Uh, note that James is, is not against planning at all. He's not saying don't make any plans. Rather, what, what he's saying is that uh, what he's against is planning that doesn't put God at the center. Planning that, that does not acknowledge that God is the one who holds the future, not me. All that, and if that is true, then we have to hold loosely to our plans. We, we know that we are not in control, that at any moment of our lives, things could change or we could die. We should also say with James, that James has also not simply given us some words to say, some sort of incantation, some sort of mantra that we just attach that onto everything, if the Lord wills. The instruction is not about words being spoken, but about a heart attitude that, that recognizes the uncertainty and the brevity of life and the sovereignty of God. Now, with that clarified, that it's not just some sort of mantra, I would also say that those words aren't bad to say. And I do think that James wants us to have the hard attitude, but I also think he expects us to literally, as we make plans, out loud to say, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing. That's been throughout church history. People have done that. If our words reveal our heart, then to say Lord willing reveals a heart that is submitting to the Lord's plans. To say Lord willing is to, to constantly acknowledge that we live under the sovereignty of God. And that while we are able to make choices and plans, we're really never ultimately in control of what's happening. I think some people are afraid of using the words, Lord willing. They're afraid that it's going to be some sort of rote, you know, a, a religious form without any substance or something like that. But I'll tell you this, my experience has been that whenever I use that phrase, whether saying it out loud or writing it, that it is always a sobering reality check, sometimes more than others. But to pause and to say, here's the plan, Lord willing. I'll be at church Sunday preaching, Lord willing. I'm hoping to be there. That's my plan. But I've also found that it's a moment to testify to God's sovereignty in this world. It's not something that is reserved just for church or just for church people in a world that says you can do anything you want as long as you try hard enough, in a world that denies the reality of death, when we start saying things like, I'll be there for lunch, Lord willing, or these are my weekend plans, Lord willing, I'm going to do this, that announces to anyone who hears us, I live under God's rule, that I'm going to make plans, but at the same time, God is the one who is in control of my life. I can make as many plans as I want, but if he is not in it, then it's bound for failure. I challenge you. It's a simple way to testify to the fact that God is king and not me to a watching world. Of course, some people think that this is a little bit morbid, right? <laughs> Others could think that, that Christians live in fear all the time, a fear of death, but I don't think that's the case. Here's a, a nice summary that I found from, from William Barclay. He says, The true Christian way is not to be terrorized into fear and paralyzed into inaction by the uncertainty of the future, but to commit the future and all our plans into the hands of God, always remembering that these plans may not be within God's purpose. Very simple, isn't it? We're submitting our plans to God's will and God's ways. And we do it with the words that we say. James ends this section with uh, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That phrase, or that sentence, just kind of feels a little out of place to me. I think maybe it could mean that having heard this instruction, if you go on arrogantly making plans about the future, then that's that's sin. 
And that's probably the clearest meaning. But let me throw this out there and see what you think. I think that possibly what's going on here, that maybe part of the, the right thing to do, whoever knows the right thing to do, that the right thing for James has always been this idea of love for neighbor, of, of self-sacrificial love. That's what is the good life is for him. And so maybe part of doing the right thing is to, is to lay aside plans for personal gain and instead to be rich towards God. I say that in light of the words that are on this man's lips. Today or tomorrow we're going to go and we're going to make some profit. And also, right, the next section is going to be about, about money and about wealth. So the right thing to do is not to live as if I'm the only one who is in control and that my plans for personal happiness are the main thing that I live for. That's what this guy is saying, right, in verse 13. I'm making plans to make some money, and it's all about me. That's not the point, though. The right thing to do is, in fact, to lay aside my plans sometimes and to focus not just on on profit and comfort and gain, but to, to focus on others, to live in submission to God's plan with a heart that seeks to bless others and to honor God with my life. So saying, if the Lord wills it, it not only acknowledges that we're submitting to, to God's sovereignty, but we're also submitting to God's will, to what he wants us to do. You can't say, if the Lord wills, with a clear conscience, if you know that you're planning to do something that is against the Lord's will, right? If you're planning to do the wrong thing, you can't say, if the Lord wills. So the businessman can't say, if the Lord wills, we're going to take advantage of some sucker in that other town and make a lot of money, right? You can't say that because that's not the Lord's will. You can't say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go out tonight with my friends and get drunk and do something stupid. That's not the Lord's will. You can't make plans like that. You can't say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to sleep in and then lie to my boss. These are things that we can't say, right? If the Lord wills to. And I think that's in part what James is saying is, Listen, your priorities need to be not just under God's sovereignty, but also under God's will. What does he desire for my life? And saying constantly, Lord willing, if the Lord wills, submits my plans to God's sovereignty, but it also submits my plans to his will of love for him and love for neighbor. Consistently making plans under the will of God encourages us to walk according to God's will. And God's will is not always about my personal comfort and my financial gain. I think Jesus, again, reveals how we can walk in this way. Wasn't Jesus the one who always submitted to the will of the Father? And that did not lead always to immediate prosperity for his life. Rather, it led to the cross. It led to suffering. It led to death. Surely he lived with the shadow of death hanging over him. He knew his purpose. He knew the exact number of his days to some extent but it's in dying that he's brought us life. He didn't shun the right thing. He didn't shun God's will when it was before him, but he submitted to it. He submitted to God freely. If we walk according to the wisdom of the world, then we, we sit above the law. We speak evil of others. We judge them rather than sitting under the law and seeking to do what it says. If we walk according to the, the wisdom of the world, then we forget the uncertainty and we forget the brevity of life and we make self-centered arrogant plans that never acknowledge God's sovereignty or God's will. In contrast, we're called to submit to God, to submit to God by humbly living under his rule as the lawgiver and the judge and the sovereign Lord of time. We don't speak evil of others. 
nor do we speak arrogantly about the future. Our, our words are filled with humble love, and our, our greatest judgment is for our own hearts. Our will is submitted to God's sovereignty, to His plan, and to His glory. I would ask, have you ever submitted to God's rule? Have you ever paused and acknowledged your sin? Focusing on, on your sin against God and how it deserves His wrath. And recognize that God is the judge, that He is the ruler of time, He is the one over all things, and that we are called to submit to Him. That no matter what we gain, we will all stand before Him as the King over all. Have you submitted to Him in confession and repentance? Have you turned to Christ, Jesus, who, who fulfilled the law and then submitted perfectly to the Father's will through death on a cross so that we be, could become His children because of what Christ has done in living and dying and rising again? If not, then I would invite you to submit to the Sovereign Lord and find grace in Jesus. Jesus has done what we could not. He's fulfilled the law. And Jesus has died for us because we failed to keep the law. And he offers us grace. And if we have, if we are followers of Jesus, then we, we are not those who speak evil towards others. And we're not those who speak arrogantly about the future because we live under the rule of King Jesus. Our lives and our words should show that we are allowing God to judge and that we desire to spend our time not on gossip and slander, but on doing what the law says. Our lives and our words should show that we live under God's sovereign rule that we know that that his will is what determines the future and we want to walk according to his will and we want to submit to what he wants for our lives that's what it looks like to live under his rule we are not those who speak evil about one another we are those who reserve the strongest judgment for ourselves and submit to god as lawgiver and judge and we are not those who speak arrogantly about the future but we submit our lives to the to the will of god we know that he is sovereign we want to do what his will is. I found these words of, of the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 to be helpful. That's where the title of the sermon comes from. Talk no, not, talk no more so very proudly. Uh, this is what I, I pray would flow from our hearts because of our time in God's word today. So I want to end with, uh, with these words and then... Um, it's, Hannah prayed, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word, and then I will close this in prayer. Father, we together confess our pride and our arrogance, the way that we judge others, the way that we plan for the future without any thought of you. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, we ask that you would humble us and that we would submit to you. We would submit to your, uh, your role as the lawgiver and the judge and not try to exalt ourselves above you that we would submit to you as the one who is the sovereign Lord, and that when we make plans, we would trust, Lord, that, 
You know what's best. Father, help us to live with this view, with a a point of view that, that sees you for who you are and understands who you are and doesn't walk around in this kind of arrogance. May it flow out in the speech that comes from our lips, whether it's the words, Lord willing, or just the willingness to to submit our plans to, to you. Father, we thank you for James. Thank you that he is kind and confronts us boldly and tells us the truth. I pray that you would help us to respond rightly to it. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.